Congratulations this morning. We have a special treat. Dr. David Mathewson is here from Denver Seminary. He's a professor of New Testament, and he's been there since 2011. His areas of research include the book of Revelation, so that's good for us today, end-time literature, Greek and linguistics, and biblical theology. He's written a numerous articles and several books, including a companion to the book of Revelation and Revelation, a handbook on the Greek text. So we're in for a treat this morning. Would you give me a warm welcome to Dr. David Mathewson. Wow, thank you so much. And don't worry, we're not gonna talk about the Greek text of Revelation. <laughs> Uh, I do have a, a story about a chili cook-off from Denver Seminary. Uh, our, from um, the, uh, the academic dean, nonetheless, one time, every year we have a chili cook-off. I think it's here in a couple weeks. And uh, one time the academic dean decided to enter a, a, his chili, which was just a can of chili he bought at the grocery store, just as a joke, and he won. <laughs> so, so he had to ex explain what went on and, and, and uh, forego receiving the prize. <laughs> so, I don't know, what kind of, I, I thought of asking him what it was because it must be good if it won because there's a lot of good uh, pe uh, people make good chili there at seminary. So anyway, so um, make sure you check, follow up with whoever the judges are on, on the chili that wins. <laughs> good. Uh, let's open with prayer. Oh, Father, uh, thank you for this time of worship this morning, and uh, we do want to uh, focus our attention on you and direct our attention to you as the, uh, the all-holy creator of the universe. But Father, the creator of the universe that, that stoops down and desires a relationship with us. Uh, so Father, we, we come humbly before you to listen to your word. And I pray that as your people, we would respond in the way that it calls us to. And so we commit this time to you. I ask for your presence uh, to fill this room and to guide our thoughts and the words that uh, are spoken this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I, one of the things I'm, I'm thrilled about is I, I find more and more churches interested in uh, preaching through the book of Revelation. And uh, usually I get asked to be part of that. I, actually, next, I was in your, at your Boulder campus last week, and then next week uh, I'm preaching at another church that is beginning a series on Revelation. And uh, I love taking opportunities like this to speak in churches and uh, take what I do in the classroom and, and uh, uh, make that uh, uh, relevant to and available to the church. So I, I, I'm so happy to be here. I love opportunities like this, especially when I get to drive a distance and see, uh, see Long's Peak and things like that. I've been up that six times, and I think I'm done climbing that, but it's always fun to see that. And that has nothing to do with Revelation. I'm not sure how I got off on that, but anyway. 
the, when we think of the book of Revelation, uh, actually the, the very first verse when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, revelation actually means, and from, from that we, uh, that comes from the Greek word apocalypse, that we get the word apocalypse from, but it, it actually means an uncovering and an unveiling. And I don't know if, if any of you have ever been to a play before. Uh, when you see a play, all that you see is what goes on in the stage. And what you don't see is behind the curtain, what goes on, everything that's going on that takes place to make that play work. All you see is that play, but you don't see what goes on behind the scenes. And that's kind of what the book of Revelation is. It's an uncovering, an unveiling to, to help us see with eyes to see, with spiritual eyes to get us to see what's really going on. Sometimes we look out at our world and we're overwhelmed with what's taking place and that's all we see. And, and the book of Revelation reminds us, no, there's, there's more to it than meets the eye. There's more going on than just what you see when you look out at the world. There, there's a whole heavenly world. So you saw last week that John, John's vision begins with a vision of heaven because God is now going to show him and he's going to show his readers that there's more than just what you see in your world. There, uh, there, there's more going on that if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, it will help you make sense and help you to live appropriately. And we see that taking place in chapter six and chapter seven. In chapter six, we find this, this interesting chapter about these six seals that are unsealed. And I had a friend um, who, he's, a, uh, he's interested in the book of Revelation too, and we were talking once and he's, he's a, he lives over in Britain He's a professor over there, and he said, yeah, I, I think the most difficult chapters in the whole Bible to preach on are chapter 6 and then chapter 8 and 9 and chapter 16. I thought, well, thanks, I'm preaching on chapter 6. Uh, but but the, the, the series of seals judgments or the, the, the trumpet judgments in chapter 8 and 9 and then the, the, the bowl judgments in chapter 16, and I think about how in the world do you preach on something like that? But again, what I think is happening here is, is John is lifting the veil. He is uncovering things so that we can see what's actually going on. And I think this chapter is totally relevant to today because when we look out at the world and we see all that's going on, we see a world, at least sometimes I, I see a world that appears to be on the brink of just chaos and falling apart. And I, I wonder how in the world do I make sense of this and how am I supposed to respond to this? And I think chapter six lifts the veil and the curtain so that we can see what's really going on. And so in chapter six, you find this series of six seals. And they actually go back to your sermon from last week. Where in chapter 5, John sees a vision of God sitting on his throne and he's holding this scroll. This scroll has seven seals on it. And in my view, this, this scroll contains God's plan of redemption and salvation and, and justice in the world. And, and, and uh, there's no one found that's worthy enough to open the scroll until John sees the lamb who was slain and he is the one worthy to open the scroll. So he just walks up to the throne and snatches it out of the hand of the one seated on the throne. 
And now in chapter 6, we're going to see that the lamb begins to open this scroll. That is, now the lamb is going to start to set in motion the contents of the scroll to enact God's purposes and plan of salvation and redemption and bringing judgment on the world. And in chapter 6, we see the seals of that scroll open. And as each seal is open, something happens, obviously. And I, I'm not going to read through the whole, whole section, but, but what I think is going on is John is going to describe... John is going to describe what is going to happen or what will happen until Christ comes back, starting in the first century. If you remember, John is addressing a group of churches living in the heart of the Roman Empire. And if anybody, they need to know how to make sense of their world. They're living in a world where Rome rules everything. Rome promises peace. Rome, Rome promises economic prosperity. Rome promises protection and security if you will bow down and give it your allegiance. And so what, what is going on here is, is you have this series of seals where I think God is demonstrating his judgment on any empire, on any entity that, that chooses to pursue life and happiness and everything while leaving him out of the picture. So, so you read just a few of these, and it begins by saying, then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a, in a, a voice like thunder, come, and I looked, and there before me was a white horse, its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he, was, uh, uh, um, he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquering. Uh, then the lamb opened the seventh seal, and I heard, come, I heard the second creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the th a living creature say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in the hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after, uh, after it. They were given power over a third of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and the wild beast of the earth. Sounds kind of like a science fiction movie or something. But what is happening here, I think, is, is John is demonstrating, here's what happens when a world chooses to ignore God and follow its own desires and its own path. And I would suggest to you that that is how God is judging, starting with the Roman Empire in John's day, but, but continue until he comes back. Any society, any world, any government, any entity that chooses to pursue paradise on earth while leaving God completely out of the picture, this is what will happen. There's a passage in the Bible, Romans chapter 1. 
that's, I think, similar. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is being poured out on humanity. But then Paul will go on three times and say, and God handed them over. God gave them over. God handed them over. That is, how is God's wrath being poured out? By handing humanity over to their own desires, their own ways, their own decisions that, that reject him and leave him out of the picture. And I think that's what's going on here. John is demonstrating, here's what happens to a world that chooses to pursue its own agenda, its own desires, and leaving God completely out of the picture and ignoring and rejecting him. And so you get this picture of a, a world in chaos. A, a, a world in political chaos. A world in economic chaos. People slaying each other in, in, in a, an economy out of whack so that, that a, a, a day's wages could only buy enough food to feed one person. In that verse, it talks about a day's wages for, for wheat and barley. That would have been enough in the first century just to feed one person, let alone your whole family. You have a situation where everything is just out of whack and out of control. And John is saying, this is what happens when a world pursues its own desires and its own agenda and its own purposes and, and completely ignores God and pushes him away and leaves him out of the picture. And I think John is simply saying that this will continue. It started in the first century. This, in a sense, is a, a critique of the first century Roman Empire. For, for those churches in chapter 2 and 3 that were wondering, well, maybe I should go along with Rome. After all, it promises peace and it promises economic prosperity. The city of Laodicea, read the last uh, uh, message to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3. They were making... They were making all kinds of money off of the Roman Empire. They were so wealthy that they didn't need God any longer. And so John is now demonstrating that this is what happens, starting in the first century Roman Empire, but until Christ comes back, this is the kind of thing that will characterize any, any nation, any entity, any empire, a world that chooses to go its own way and push God out of the picture, to reject him, ignore him. This is what will happen. And so what does this say to God's people today? What does this say to you and me? As I read this, I think, you know, this, this causes me to, to release my grip a little bit on the things of this world. When I look at what the, and it's not that, the, that it, these are bad things. It's not that, the, it's not things that are sinful and evil. But when I look at this world and I look at my own desires and my own agenda, and I look at the things that this world have, has to offer, however good, this chapter should cause us to just a little bit release our grip on those things. To realize that these things are a poor object of our trust and our hope. And, and if it causes us again to just let, let go a little bit, to release our grip on these things because they are not 
an appropriate object of trust and hope and security and peace. The things that only God himself can provide. So notice how this chapter ends. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole whole moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as lake figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded or rolled up like a scroll, And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free person hid in its caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath is come and who can stand? It's almost as if these, these earlier seals that, that picture a world of chaos and out of control, now it reaches its climax in the day of the Lord. It, it, now you really see things out of control. It's like all hell breaks loose and, and creation has run amok as, as now God brings his final judgment on earth. It's as if the, the other seals are, are warnings of what is to come. Again, calling God's people Don't put your trust and faith in that. Be willing to to let those things go, release your grip on that. They, They don't make a good object of your trust because here's what happens when a world pursues its own agenda, its own desire, goes its own way and and leaves God completely out of the picture. Are you sure you want to be part of that? Are you sure you want to place your hope and trust and security in that? So what should the church be doing? What should God's people be doing? I know some of this may be a little bit different way than some of you are used to reading Revelation. Uh, um, But but, uh, again, however you read it, we need to understand that, that, that this book is a call. We just sang songs about holiness. This book is primarily a revelation of who Jesus is and who, and who God is and what it means to respond in obedience and worship. Uh, I, I think the whole point of the book of Revelation is to answer the question, who is wor- really worthy of our worship? Is it, is it the, anything or anybody in this world? Well, chapter six, 6 shows us no. Uh, here's what happens when, when you pursue paradise on earth and just leave God totally out of the picture. Here's here's why this world is not a worthy object of your trust and your allegiance and your hope and your desire. Because everything just falls apart when it goes its own way. But what should the people of God be doing? 
Well, notice uh, chapter 6 ends with a question. Uh, again, you have the, these seals characterize all of history, and then chapter 6 ends with the day of the Lord, the future coming of Christ. Uh, to say all these things that are happening, you think things are, are, are running amok now, you think things are out of control now, one day God will ultimately bring judgment upon a world that rejects him and wants to go its own way and wants nothing to do with him. And then it ends with this question, who can stand? Who will be able to stand in that day? Who can stand in the midst of this world when we look out at a world of, of, uh, th that appears to be falling apart and, and running amok and, and, and chaotic? Who can stand? That's the very last question that chapter 6, who can stand? Chapter 7 will answer that question. Here's who can stand. Here is who will stand in the day of judgment. Here is who can stand in a world that is running out of control or looks like it is out of control. Oh, we know it's not because uh, God, is, uh, God is seated on his throne in chapter 4 and 5. It's, it's important, it's kind of a side note, it's important to always keep chapter 4 and 5 in, your, in mind as you read through the rest of the book of Revelation. Everything that happens comes from that. God is on his throne. No matter how bad it seems to get, no matter how chaotic things seem in Revelation, God is still on his throne. And nothing happens that's out of his control. So chapter 7, what should the people of God be doing? It, in the midst of a, a world that seems out of control, that will eventually result in God intervening with his judgment. Who can stand? What should God's people be doing? Chapter 7 is an answer to that question. And in chapter 7, what happens is, uh, again, I'll just kind of give you my understanding of it, uh, but try to fit it into what is going on. And what does that say about, uh, about God's people today and how we should respond to this? In chapter 7, we're introduced to two different groups. One of them is labeled the 144,000, 12,000 sealed from each of the tribes of Israel. And then starting in, chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 7, you're introduced to an innumerable multitude, a multitude so large that no one could number it. And what I think is going on is, I think these are the exact same group just looked at from two different perspectives. Uh, notice the, the 144,000 uh, sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the point is, notice that it begins, the first tribe listed is the tribe of Judah. And who do we know comes from the tribe of Judah? The person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you were introduced to the lion from the tribe of Judah back in chapter 5. So what I think is going on is John is saying, this is no ordinary group of people. This is no ordinary 12 tribes of Israel. It starts with the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of Jesus. And what that means is this tribe, these, this 144,000 is going to be defined in relationship to Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah. 
In other words, I think John is describing the people of God, the church throughout all century, including Jews, but also including Gentiles, now as one people of God. Uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you find Peter taking Old Testament language, a kingdom of priests, and now applying it to this church, this new people of God. And I think John is doing the same thing. But why would, why would he picture the people of God as, a, as 12 tribes and 144,000. Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, every time you find Israel numbered, the tribes numbered, it's usually for what reason? To determine their military strength, to determine the size of the army. So what John is doing here is say, basically saying the people of God, the church, is to be a mighty army. They are, the numbering of them is to determine this is an army of great military strength and they go out to do battle. But when you read Revelation carefully, they don't do so by weapons and swords and, 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 and guns and, and, and by normal military means. The church goes out and conquers and does witness or, or, or does battle through its faithful witness for the person of Jesus Christ. The church is a mighty army that goes out and conquers and defeats the enemy, not like the Roman Empire did with the sword, but by, like the Lamb did through his faithful witness, even to the point of death. So what should we be doing in the midst, middle of a world run amok and falling apart in chapter 6. Well, instead of cowering and in, instead of uh, uh, feeling sorry for ourselves, instead the church is to emerge victorious and be a faithful witness in the midst of such a world. The church is to witness to the reality of God and the Lamb, the very things we've been singing this morning. The church is to witness to that in a world that's falling apart and, and chaotic. It, instead of giving our allegiance to that, instead of making this world and the things it offers the object of our hope, instead, or, or instead of responding in despair or hopelessness, the church goes out as a faithful witness. Witnesses to the gospel, witness to the reality of, of God and his holiness, witness to the lamb who died for the sins of the world. And when we do that, verse 9 says, After that I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing. Remember the question that chapter 6 ended? Who can stand after all this, in the day of the Lord, and after all the, this chaos and, and evil and a world run amok and under God's judgment? Who can stand now we see the people of God standing after they have accomplished their mission of being a mighty army that goes out and does battle and conquers through its faithful witness for Jesus Christ, through its faithful witness to God and the Lamb. Now they stand in God's presence and experience the joy of God's presence 
as a reward for their faithful witness. And so he goes on and says, this multitude was standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's the throne of God and the Lamb that we read about back in chapter 4 and 5. They were wearing white robes and, and were holding palm branches in their hands, a sign of victory. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. There's another song of worship. The theme of worship comes back again. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down with their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. So now the people of God are pictured as joining heaven in chapter 4 and 5 in worshiping God and the Lamb as a result of their faithful witness, as a result of overcoming by their faithful witness in a world full of chaos and evil, a world in disarray. So I think the message of Revelation 6 and 7 to us is that when we look out at a world that appears chaotic and falling apart at the, coming unraveled at the seams, is the response of God's people it shouldn't be to, to cower in fear, uh, nor should it be to, to, to give in to that or, or, or to give our allegiance and our, uh, focus our all our attention on what this world has to offer. Uh, chapter 6 is calling us to, to release our grip on that, to not make those things the object of our hopes and our desire and our security. But instead, chapter 7 then in the midst of this calls us to go out as a mighty army and do battle through our faithful witness to the Lamb, to God and the Lamb. In anticipation of that day when we will join heaven and worship God and the Lamb on the throne. You see, once again, chapter 6 and 7 is trying to orient your, your attention to what, what should be the object of your worship. What should be the object of your allegiance and, and your praise? What should you value the most? Is, is it your, your bank account? Is it your, your job and your career? or whatever else you want to put in there. And, and not that those are bad. It's just that they're, they are a poor object of your worship and your security and your focus. And chapter 6 is asking us to let that go. Release your grip on those things. Don't make those an object of your focus. Instead, worship God and the Lamb. That's what you will be doing in due eternity. And until that day, yes, we still worship now, but the church goes out in a world falling apart 
and it overcomes through our faithful witness, our witness to God and the Lamb. Will you join me in doing that? Will you join me in, in taking on the challenge of Revelation 6 and 7? Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you for your word that helps us to see our world and our situation more clearly. And I pray that, that as a church, we would take seriously the responsibility of not making the things of this world the, the object of our trust and our allegiance and our hope and our security. But we'd be willing to loosen our grip on that and instead to, to focus our attention on the task of, of conquering through our faithful witness to God and the Lamb, to modeling before the world, modeling before the world the reality of, of a holy God and a sacrificial Lamb that has died for our sins. And that we'd focus our attention on what is the appropriate object of our worship, our praise, allegiance, our security, as demonstrated through our worship of God and the Lamb who sit on the throne. In Jesus' name, amen.